Hey everybody, this is Joy, and on the other end of the mic is Brian, as always. Hello, folks. <laughs> hey, <laughs> we've had a few glitches here, so the currently scheduled um, uh, show about herbalism is being delayed yet again. Um, and in place of that, we're going to be talking about uh, several things that deal with people directly. Uh, it's going to be... Uh, being in the broom closet and issues with the broom closet, coming out to pagan friends and family and dealing with them and everything like that. And we're probably going to also get on to uh, familiars and spirit helpers. So come on in, uh, sit down, grab your cookies and ice cream or whatever, and uh, join us for the next two hours. This is show number 21. Okay, well... <laughs> <laughs> it's been a day. We've spent an hour already trying to record one show, and then technical difficulties, as usual, have uh, kind of killed it for us. <laughs> yes. Um, we were actually talking to Paul Byerl and uh, Ellen Everett Hotman uh, about herbalism, and we were looking forward to making the show happen, and technology decided to take a turn on us, and... Then, you know, people being people, uh, we decided eventually that we're going to do separate shows with each of them so that they can feature their own work and, and talk as actually, long as they want. Yeah, we can actually get in-depth with them because apparently we, we had planned on doing three people at once and with two hosts that would just, you know, really get out of hand quick. Um, so we decided to scale it back so that we're only doing one at a time. Uh, and then piece those together into some kind of show. Uh, either all of it in one show, uh, multiple different shows, we don't know. So, as usual, we're flying by the seat of our pants and skirts and kilts and everything. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, our, our current topics we decided in all of five minutes. So, mm. we're going to see what we can do with that and <laughs> hope for the best today. Um, oh, it shouldn't but- be too hard. Thank you again, Paul and Ellen, for joining us today while we had all our problems. Mm. And, you know, let's hope that our shows with each of you do not have the same issues. Let's work really hard not to. Um, Okay, so for today's topic um, that we decided in all of three minutes, uh, a listener named Rebecca wrote in uh, with a list of topic suggestions for us. And they were really good. the two things that she mentioned that we actually do need to cover is dealing with pagan with non-pagan friends and family and uh, dealing with a broom closet. Um, so we're going to talk about those two. And we have already planned a Familiars and Spirit Helpers uh, episode for much later. We never really got around to recording it, though. So we're going to kind of roll that into this on the second hour. All right? Yes. So... Um, Let's start off with the basics. The, for those of you that don't, that aren't up on the technical jargon, the broom closet refers to the um, hidden pagan spirituality in your life. Uh, it's a take on being in the closet when you're gay, uh, but because this is specifically to paganism and Wicca, it's called the broom closet to kind of differentiate it. Exactly. Um, yeah. There's uh, a lot of people that have covered in various books uh, things that you want to think about uh, when you finally decide to come out. Uh, 
uh, and announce your paganness, I guess. Uh, your, your new epiphanies. Um, a lot of them, however, don't really approach how to do it um, with class. I mean, most of these books, when I read them, uh, are like, you, you sit your family down, you talk to them about it, you explain that it's not demon worship, that you uh, honor nature, and it's the cycles of the moon and the sun and the seasons, and, you know, but I always envision this 13-year-old girl who has, you know, read the books, decided that this is her path, sitting her Baptist Christian parents down and explaining all of this to them. And because it comes out of left field so far, they're, of course, going to freak out. Naturally. They're going to, you know, they're not going to understand. They're not going to want to listen. They're not going to try to understand your side of everything. Um, it's true. Yeah. I mean, again, it it does reflect similarly on, on the whole idea of introducing, like, alternative sexuality. Um, you know, the experiences are quite the same uh, as far as that awkwardness, the uh, the sort of apprehension to come out, um, basically because, you know, you never know how people are going to react because they might say, oh, yeah, I'm so open-minded, you know, um, I'm, I'm completely willing to listen and understand. And then, you know, as soon as that thing is right there in their face they they react really badly or whatever so mostly what i find is that the reason that they react so badly is because there is no warm-up to it um a lot of all of this can be mitigated for not only parents grandparents and things like that but by actually living all of the principles that you say you believe, that you profess to believe, uh, and start bringing that into your life and making it more obvious. And after 10, 12 months or something, when they've gotten comfortable with aspects of what you believe, then you can, ca can you know, start calling on the goddess. You can start, you know, saying, oh, Zeus, you know, why hast thou forsaken me or whatever. <laughs> and exactly. You can you can start bringing it out. You, you start introducing it slowly, and you start introducing it by living it, and that seems to be the really key part, I think, with this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, people tend to make it. They they tend to be more willing to understand if if they see that you're a living example of whatever you're professing to believe. Um, and that, you know, I mean, it obviously reflects not only in pagan spirituality, but in, like, lifestyle choices. Um, you know, if you decide to go vegan and, and you're a complete obnoxious dick about it, then people are going to be like, oh, you're one of those. Yeah. Um, the same goes with pagan spirituality. Um, I found that people generally didn't understand the term druid, so I tended to have to explain that. Um when I was trying to, you know, discuss my spiritual path because people don't hear that term very often in con like unless they're, you know, into fantasy or, you know, historical fiction or, you know, they happen to be exploring in some way. Um, so yeah, that, that 
ends up being the first conversation I have. Um, and I, you know, say, well, it, it's like an Aboriginal spirituality that, you know, centers out in, you know, northern continental Europe and, you know, the British Isles, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, it's what the yes. Celts believed and it's what they worshipped and it's how they worshipped and we're trying to recreate it because this is a, a nature-centered uh, faith. Uh, closest that y'all might know is Native Americans. And you can even do it, you know, to, to prime the pump a little bit. We talked about this some um, last episode um, with just having your books out. If you're studying the Buckland's Big Blue Book of Witchcraft... You know, sit on your on your couch, have it in your lap, read it. You know, and it's got the illustrations. Mom and Dad will see it, and they'll go, uh, "What are you reading that for?" And you can say, "Well, I'm interested in it. You know, I'd like to learn a little bit more about it." And you know, just prime the pump a little bit. The one big mistake that a lot of baby pagans make, and this is one that I want to slap them for every time is one day they've got the the gold cross and they've got the Bible under their arm and they've got five or six church histories and different and sayings about God and Jesus and angels and everything, you know. And then the next day they come in and they've got, you know, the black T-shirt and the plate-sized pentagram on their chest. And, you know, they're carrying an asame <laughs> on their waist. And, you know, I, it's like, can you make this any more in-your-face belligerent? <laughs> It's true. And unfortunately, I, I think one of the reasons that people are so um, resistant to, you know, baby pagans coming out of the broom closet is precisely the fact that they seem like they're rebelling against, you know, nothing mm-hmm. or against their particular upbringing, however, you know, they were raised, whether it was conservative or just, you know, atheistic or whatever. Um, the fact that people tend to make it so blatant and sort of obnoxiously so it 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 appears from the other person's perspective that you know it's a costume because suddenly you're you're donning all these like pagan symbols and wearing all the shirts that say you know i'm a witch or you know life's a witch and then you fly or things like that (laughs) and you know, there there tends to be that kind of like, oh, it's a costume. You're you're just doing it for attention, kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas if you take your time with it and not, you know, and you don't go out and spend like five hundred dollars on magical tools and you know, magical ritual wear and whatever, um, all at once, and you you kind of begin by living the principles and practicing and adhering to a a, a, a predictable calendar of of holidays people start going okay well you know this is kind of interesting you know what exactly are you doing when you go to the woods you know on the weekend or whatever to like chill or whatever you happen to be doing Mm -hmm. um and you know if you've got like friends that you hang out with to go hiking or camping or whatever and they see you applying your spirituality in that setting they'll they'll be more receptive to it and you don't have to make it obvious i mean you don't have to wear your ritual robes to on a camping trip with your backpack with your friends um but when you get a chance if you're out backpacking and say you go fishing 
Yeah, when, exactly. When you're out with your friends and say you go fishing and you catch a couple of fish, hold one of the fish up. You know, salute the sun with it. Say thank you very much for this bounty that you've given to me. Put it in the basket and eat it that night. You know, appreciate the animal. And that way that brings the gratefulness of pagandom to a normal action, one that people are going to raise eyebrows about, but not one that's going to be so confrontational that they feel horrible about mentioning it. Exactly. I mean, if you are – like if you're watching a movie with someone that you are trying to come out of that closet to, um, what you can do is take a look at something like um, Avatar. And mm. during the scene where the – Avatar, Nikiri, not the last airbender. Avatar. No, no, no. The, the, the Avatar, blue the blue-skinned people. <laughs> yes. Um, where they are – you know, slaying that um, dog-looking thing because, yeah. you know, because the guy shot it prematurely. Um, you know, talk about how – draw attention to the fact that, you know, she kind of offered a prayer of thanks to the, the animal before she, you know, slaughtered it. And she, you know, felt bad that she had to kill it and so on. And then um, later in the same movie, he goes out hunting and kills another animal like it uh, in their style, thanks the animal, you know, and everything like that. And she, you know, compliments him on a clean kill, you know. Go ahead. Exactly. And, I mean, actually, you can take a lot of examples of, of pagan living from Avatar because, you know, they do commune with the uh, their mother goddess mm-hmm. um, through connecting to trees and, you know, to animals and so on. So... Um, if, if you're trying to come out to someone as a pagan of some variation, um, think about how your particular path is reflected in movies. Um, because a movie that you're sitting down with someone to watch can kind of be an icebreaker Mm -hmm. as far as the conversation is concerned. Yeah. And yeah, I know, uh, Avatar has been very roundly panned by a lot of people uh, just like Dances with Wolves was because white man comes in becomes aboriginal and saves all of them from the super technological society that's out to destroy them and in that it's a it is it is a campy <laughs> story that's been well, told over and over and over again. But Yeah, exactly. It's formulaic, but at the same time, I think it presents a lot of spirituality details mm-hmm. that a lot of movies don't anymore. Yeah. And um, there was, uh, on some of the DVD extras, I was watching Avatar on FX not too long ago, and they had interviews with Mr. Cameron, who was the writer, producer, director, uh, or writer, producer, whatever he, he was, but that he was trying to get those pagan elements into the movie to show an appreciation for the land, for everything around you, instead of just ignoring it. Well, exactly. And I mean, there are various and sundry movies that will touch on aspects of what, you know, has come to be modern pagan spirituality. Um any of your average wizard movies, um, provided they're not like really hokey, can the black kind crystal. Of... 
Crystal is not. It's hokey. <laughs> it really is, and I'm for the fine time with that. period. It was wonderful. And it was fantastic. Just like Labyrinth was revolutionary, and you know everything for the time period. Now you look back at it and you go, "God, that sucked." It's true. Unfortunately, that's how it happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, don't be afraid to sit down with someone that you know you're trying to talk to about your spirituality, and you know, pick movies that you feel reflect your path. Um, if you happen to be interested in, I don't know, native spirituality in some way, um, try to find movies that have a more spiritual element to them than the, you know, red face. Um, the spaghetti westerns. Yes, exactly. Um, they're, they're called for those of you in the younger generation who don't know. They're called spaghetti westerns because back in the '60s and '70s, when they were filming these, all the actors were Italian. Well, all so, the all the Native American actors were Italian, and they deliberately used Italian people, made them up to look like Native Americans, and gave them you know the grunting, "Oh, me, uh, me hungry, kimosabi type," you know dialogue uh, it's so true. and did not use any of the actual Native American actors that were out there. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> and that's where, again, Dances with Wolves was revolutionary. I mean, their cast was huge. It was all Native actors. Um, you know, and Kevin Costner, you know, was awed by the experience. So yeah. it was a really good movie, and it's one of my favorite movies. I like the extended version of it that's three hours long rather than the two hour long one. Yeah, because definitely. a lot of the little things that you don't understand in the two hour one are expanded on. And the entire thing with the, the army post that he went to that was deserted um, in the three hour version, they have 20 minutes of declarative, explorative uh, scenery where they go through all of that and there was a colonel there and there were people there and they had barricaded themselves and they were so isolated they had nothing their horses were stolen uh, they finally said fuck the army and walked off and, which is why he rode up to an empty post with exactly. all these supplies <laughs> it was great Absolutely. yeah that that does remain one of my favorite movies, and I mean, it it's it's really kind of um, an interesting one to to bring up as far as living a spiritual life that is a little offbeat because uh, they, I mean, there is no native culture in the world that doesn't incorporate its spirituality into daily life, um, and I think that's where. Um, a lot of people nowadays get confused with um, people who become neo-pagans in some way um, because they're so accustomed to that sort of weekend, you know, churchy thing where the rest of the week you're just like every obnoxious dick on the block. <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, goodness, goodness sake, you go on Sunday and you're like the ultra churchy. Yep. Whoever you may be, and Sundays and holidays, or you know, uh, Sunday Sunday Christians. Exactly. Um, I mean, I I know a few at work who are like that, and I know several. They're several. They're very self righteous, and I think that's 
a mistake when you're living a spiritual life, especially when it's kind of a minority one. Um, because people see you as the representation for everyone who claims that title. Mm-hmm. And if you're a dick, they're going to be like, um, yeah, there's a problem with your path and mm-hmm. you're an idiot. So they don't tend to take that well. No. Um, they get really confrontational. In fact, uh, there's a, a story that Isaac Bonowitz uh, wrote and put up on his website uh, about how he found pagan religion. Uh, he was attending uh, UC Berkeley uh, and was going through their uh, bachelor's program just to get the required stuff out of the way. And he finally just got upset, and he got tired of the self-righteous church thing and the peace hippie thing. And he started standing out on the uh, square where you know people stand and talk about stuff and preaching about Satan. And he did this quite a lot. And LeVay, uh, LeVay's wife actually uh, approached him to join the Church of Satan. So they made a big production of it. He joined... Uh, they um, made very confrontational uh, production about it. He would be carried in on um, a uh, litter uh, by four other people. He was all dressed in black. He had, you know, the Salazar um, beard cut and everything. And he would stand there and he would pontificate about how wonderful Satan was and how Christianity was just terrible and yada yada yada. And he finally got bored with it and went over to Druidism. <laughs> But you know, that kind of confrontation is what we do not need. That, you know, save that for. Well, I think at the time, you know, that was like 50 years ago or something. So, I mean, at the time, I think that kind of shock treatment of it was probably necessary just to kind of wake people up to the reality that there were alternative spiritualities in the world. Um, so, you know, I kind of, you know, respect him for having done that but at the same time i think nowadays because there is such a different attitude towards spirituality in general and paganism more specifically um doing that kind of shock jock approach doesn't really look good for everyone it would cause more enemies and more problems than it would solve Precisely. It's the the shock value for I'm a pagan is useful in some aspects, but you really have to weigh it against all of the problems that are going to occur because of it. If you go to your parents or your loved ones or your uh, grandparents or whoever you're coming out to, and you know you have. Uh, the ritual woad on and makeup and you've got your ritual robes and you've got your tools you know as empowering as that is to other pagans what they're going to see is somebody dressed in a dress uh, in a dress that has no ornamentation on it with a knife with all of this weird makeup on it and it's going to be confrontational from the beginning and yes unfortunately to... if go ahead if they've seen a movie like The Wicker Man, the original one, um, you know they're going to be picturing you as that um, cross-dressing fool. Um, what was he called? The Secret Androgyne or something? I've but never he wasn't seen like it. So. Oh my God, you haven't? No. You're missing out so much. It's a great I've, movie. I've seen the Tumblr uh, memes with um, Kevin Costner, not Kevin Costner, um, 
Nicholas Cage. Christopher and Lee. Oh, Nic- Nicholas Cage and the bees. And he's just screaming bees for like five minutes or something. <laughs> I've seen that. Yeah, That's that about was it. an unfortunate remake that just shouldn't have been made. Um, the original one originally was a lot shorter than the re-release, but um, it starred Christopher Lee, who actually looked at the script and kind of volunteered to do the movie because he was like, you know what? Um, I love this script, you know, and I can't imagine that, you know, this could be made if I was paid my standard fee. And he just kind of went, you know what? I want to make this movie. I'll Um, do it for scale. (laughs) Like Robin Williams. He didn't even. He volunteered to do it um, because he just felt that the script was so amazing and, and that the potential for the movie was just so mind-blowing that he just kind of was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. I, I really like this movie. Um, and he was really popular at the time. I mean, he'd been Dracula and he'd done all sorts of other stuff. Um, so imagine Saruman as uh, uh, <laughs> protagonist. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, he, yeah. In I mean, that movie was absolutely fantastic. It takes place around Mayday, um, Beltane. Mm-hmm. And... It features this sort of isolated community on an island that is like living a modern paganism where they, you know, they basically honor the old gods and they, you know, have the the girls dancing around the fire hoping to get pregnant by the gods and so on. And then basically the whole culmination of the Wicker Man itself is the idea of human sacrifice because they're crops failed the previous year so they're like the only way we can manage this is if we offer the proper sacrifice and that's what the whole movie's built on um the modern remake i enjoy just for the novelty of it but it is not quite as good as the wicker man the final cut which is the re-release of the original um with a lot of footage that was thought to be lost um so it it has a lot of backstory that makes the whole movie make a lot more sense. Okay. Um, Sounds but, like that Scottish island vanishes for every hundred years and only shows up for one day. I I do remember hearing about that at some yeah. point. There's there's a movie about it. I don't remember the name of it. And if Mary, the goddess of all research, was around, she'd be hitting me right now. Um, it's but, not Scarabray, is it? No, it's okay. something it's something else. It's essentially what happens is is that every 100 years this island shows up. Hang on. <laughs> Hello. Okay. Do you want to get it? Please. Uh wait. What is what is the name of that Scottish film with the island that only shows up every hundred years? Brigadoon. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye. Brigadoon. It's an interesting thing that she knew that off the top of her head. Oh, she's been pushing this on me for some time. Brigadoon. Yeah, it's uh, this guy wanders into the city that showed up just one night. It's only going to be there one night. And then it's going to disappear and show back up in a hundred years. And he falls in love with this girl, and he decides to stay. And it's apparently a wonderful love story, but they're very 
pagan in their beliefs and the way they do things as well, simply due to the fact that they haven't had the connection to modern times to get contaminated. So, you know, they're all doing that too. Huh. Anyway, um, <laughs> be that as it may. Um, the other things uh, with uh, the broom closet is um, need to know. Okay? Your coworkers don't need to know you're pagan. Your uh, preacher doesn't need to know you're pagan. You, you don't have to jump into the mailman's face and go, I am pagan! You know, I am pagan, hear me roar! <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm bringing home the bacon and all that. No, I mean, you know, tell the people that are going to be affected by it the most. You know, the, the, and you don't have to tell them right away. You can convert to paganism, you can get uh, initiated, you can be going months and months and months without saying anything to your spouse. And, it's true. you know, th they may ask you after, you know, a couple of months why you're no longer going to church, tell them then. You know, just say, look, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I've decided that Christianity is not for me or whatever your faith is. I've converted to paganism of whatever flavor. And this is me now. Because I'll tell you something, making it non-confrontational, taking it out of the realm of, we must have a serious talk, makes the transition so much easier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a mistake a lot of people make, is that they have to, they have this idea that they have to sit down and make it a very formal situation. But the reality is, um, that makes it a lot harder for people to deal with because it does give them that sense of, you know, sort of... They become a hermit crab. As yeah. soon as you sit them down and start saying, we must talk, they immediately erect all these walls and all these barriers and they withdraw into themselves. And they stop being open-minded at that point. Yeah, for sure. And may, I mean, you know, if may it's coming part out of, of your daily life... Yeah, make coming out of the broom closet a non-event, you know... Ten years from now, you look at it. Remember when I told you I was pagan? And they look at you and go, no. You know? Because it's just not memorable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, the same thing happens with a lot of people and their sexual orientation as well. I mean, there's there's that whole, you know, we must talk because this is the only thing about me that, you know, there is. And, you know, fuck everything else that made me who I am. You must um, know that I like guys instead of girls like I'm supposed to and that I'm going to be living with a girl and that I have rainbow things all over the place. And every single group for LGBT says that is the worst approach to take ever. So, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, the reality is if it's just one part of who you are, then it shouldn't be a big dramatic thing, right? Um, a lot of people get defensive or hostile because of the idea that that is the only thing about a person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, in my own case, I mean, there's, for my approach, I mean, the reality is I see the pride flag as kind of a, a, a wall. Um, personally, I don't wave pride flags around because I just don't see the need for it. Um, because of the fact that people get defensive and hostile toward the flag itself. It doesn't represent that much about who I am, so I don't 
make a point of doing that. Um, and frankly, it's nobody's business unless you're planning on trying to sleep with them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I'm very active on a lot of transgender groups. Uh, I advocate for transgender people and pagans uh, all the time on Tumblr. If you followed me on Tumblr, you would know that I was pagan and that I'm trans. But just w looking at me in normal life, you'd never know I was either. I'm just a person walking around. Let me tell you about when I came out to my grandmother, okay? I had been um, studying uh, paganism since 1989, really, uh, just reading books here and there. I finally self-dedicated in uh, about 1991, very early in the year. Uh, no, it was right after we got an apartment, so somewhere around October. And... You know, I started wearing the jewelry with the pentagram on it and talking to people and uh, participating in the community. Well, every year for Christmas, we would go up to uh, my grandmother's house in Tennessee because at the time I was living in Georgia. And I came up for Christmas and we were, you know, all together and everything was fine and I had my necklace out. I didn't say anything to anyone. Uh, I also had a pentagram ring that I had on. And Grandma, who uh, was enough of a New Age um, Christian to understand the different symbols, um, recognized them, knew what it meant, um, and finally, you know, just sat me down with Mary and said, okay, what is going on? Why are you wearing a pentagram? And I told her. I said, look, I am Wiccan now. Uh, I don't feel a call towards Christ or Jesus or God or anything anymore. Uh, I talk with my deities directly, and this is who I am. And she looked me very straight in the eye, and she said, well, I don't approve of it, but we'll see. And then she left. Three days later, when we got done with all the celebrations and we're leaving, she came up to me, and she hugged me very tightly, and she said, I've watched you these three days, and... You're still a very good person, and I love you, no matter who you pray to. And I melted. I, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Mary was crying. Uh, I was really, really touched. But because I made it non-confrontational, because I didn't come walking in that first day, I am Wiccan, hear me roar! You know, it, exactly. It took all of the, the fight out of the entire confrontation, and it became not a confrontation. And yeah. then I just lived my life as myself, doing what I would normally do anyway, and she saw that transposition of deities is about the only thing that changed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the reality is, like, during the periods where I was wearing pentacles all the time and stuff... Um, I would wear them, you know, just as, like, anyone might wear, I don't know, whatever, a cross or what have you. And generally, I would get kind of confused stares at the necklace or whatever. But it, if people wanted to know, they would ask. Um, and the people who just didn't want to understand the symbol would simply avoid talking about it. And, you know, that's kind of how I approach everything i mean the reality is uh, spirituality sexual orientation all that kind of stuff is just part of who you are mm -hmm. um it it may be 
deeply woven into your normal life, but it isn't everything that makes you you. I mean, people who know you for, you know, 30 years or whatever are going to know that you have other interests and that you have particular musical tastes or a fashion style or whatever. Um, and it's only when there's a sudden conspicuous transition between like, um, conservative, you know, lacy colored churchy dresses to, you know, the Elvira style dress with the cut up the <laughs> leg and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's where people go, wait a second here. What yeah. the hell is going on? We got drugs. Um, drugs. <laughs> well, and they'll generally assume that's what it is. Um, it's funny because I tend to wear at Samhain Tide um, a little necklace made of – or a, a bracelet made of skulls, little crystal skulls. <laughs> and I quite like it. Um, people generally kind of give me a weird look because it is a little – wrist you know it's a bracelet of skulls and you know they're like what exactly is that about and i you know i'll explain to them that um it kind of reminds me of the fact that we all die um yep. you know it it's it's about mortality and you know it's Rather not than... a big freaky thing it's not me trying to promote some sort of satanic ideology or whatever i mean i could explain levain <laughs> satanism to them because i was into that for a while but the reality is it's kind of a memento mori um, trinket for me. Mm -hmm. So and, yeah, I use skulls in my iconography all the time myself. Um, I made a uh, um, I don't know what you call it—a talisman uh, for helping with astral projection—and uh, I put on it uh, about five or six rutilated crystals beads, uh, about four. Um, Azurite malachite, uh, which helps open your third eye. Uh, rutilated quartz pulls energy to you. And the central piece is a big wooden skull that was carved. And all three of those things, you know, relate to the spirit world. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's great. And people are like, wow, I really love the symbol symbolism in there. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Isn't it great? Well, and actually it's funny because there's a, a brand of Canadian vodka called Crystal Head that comes in skull yes. bottles. Yes, I wanted to get some and of that. I got myself the little sample size bottle. It's like an ounce of vodka. Uh -huh. uh, I drank it last night. Great stuff. Oh, good. But it's a cute little skull bottle that's clear glass, and I'm probably going to use it for some sort of – Sawin potion or something along oh, that put line. Put your ritual, your ritual anointing oil in it. I could do that because um, then you could rededicate the bottle, and uh, then since when you're entering the circle, um, you're anointing the person coming in. It's taking them out of the living world into the spirit world. Yeah, I've actually kind of been thinking about maybe doing some sort of ancestralish type connection to that. Yeah. Um, and again, like this is only the sample size bottle. It's like an ounce, which mm -hmm. is, I mean, it's it's really cool and I love it. But the big size is like the size of a baby's head. Yeah. And I I kind of was hesitant to go and just commit myself to it without trying it first. But yeah, it's also sixty dollars. Really you know, it's like whoa, yeah, that's wait a the minute. Thing. Like up here, it's over seventy dollars, and I'm like, I really should try it first, but I really want the bottle. Yeah, down and here I in thought, the 
down here in the States, we can get uh, a regular one liter bottle of cheap vodka for seven and a half dollars, which I think translates to right around nine dollars Canadian, I think. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, like we have a variety of vodkas available at a range of prices up here. So <laughs> I imagine that, you know, aside from Crystal Head, which is only a skull bottle, um, yeah, I mean, I, if I wanted to go and just get a cheap drunk, then I probably could for under 10 bucks. But, Ooh, yeah. I just had an idea. Can you imagine getting one of those bottles, emptying it out, you know, washing it out, flushing it really nice, pouring white paint into it, rolling it around on the inside so that it coats everything, and then dumping the excess out, letting it dry, and then sticking a candle in the socket? That would be interesting, actually. It would. And actually, that would be very trad witchcraft. It too. would. That would be a very alt, like a trad witch altar kind of a piece. Uh huh. I was just, I just thought of that and went, ooh, yes, yummy. Now something for me. <laughs> I could justify seventy dollars for that. <laughs> figure out what the hell I was going to do. I want to get a skull for my altar, but like, I've got a little like skull and a tripod candle holder uh-huh. and I'm like it's cute but not quite what I want I've always but, wanted to get a real human skull myself because you know the wizard lair with the big huge <laughs> book on the lectern absolutely. and the skull missing the jaw and the candle with the wax drippings down on it I was, I was always like yeah that's what I want see the funny thing is I kind of want you know the real genuine human skull I want like the alchemist's um, alembic you know the whole like assembly of alchemist tools with like the dripping stuff and whatever i always thought it'd be really cool but then i'm like i probably don't need that really and it's <laughs> kind of a pain in the ass to get a hold of so yeah, it gets expensive quick yeah and brian touched on this a lot earlier um for listeners back to your listeners now <laughs> Do, when you when you dedicate when you uh enter into your spirituality do not under any circumstance think that you have to run out and spend five thousand dollars to get your perfect altar right then okay i have been practicing for 23 years now i like i said i dedicated myself in 1990 so actually 24 um i have yet to have my perfect altar and yeah i've i've got ideas about what i want but it's I'm nowhere near there yet. <laughs> At one point, one of the things that I wanted to do was uh, get the 13 sacred woods uh, that the Druids use, uh, one for each month in the Druidic calendar, and steam the end and, and split it in such a way that you could open it up like a flower. Get one of those glass globe lamps, uh, kind of like a tiki torch, put it there, close it all back up, and put different colored oils in there to put around the perimeter of the circle and one at the altar. And, hmm. you know, each time, each month when it changes, you rotate them in order. So this month it's you, next month it's Ivy, the month after that it's Alder, the month after that it's something. And that is the, whatever month is starting, that's the one that's at the altar. And it's in a cycle around the perimeter of the, the sacred spot. I started actually pricing this out. <laughs> We're talking about ten grand or more here. 
Um, and I went, well, Jesus, uh, maybe not. <laughs> well, I mean, you think about it. You've got uh, ivy, and ivy is you know a small flowering uh, plant that grows up things. It's got creepers. In order to find a stave, you know, four four or five feet long, and thick enough to actually stab into the ground and hold a glass globe, you're talking about, you know, cutting a chunk of ivy that's probably a thousand or more years old. That's true, and it's probably unlikely you're going to find it at your, you know, Local random... horticulture shop, you know. There's not going to be a, a building anywhere in the U.S. that's old enough to have a thick enough and long enough... Uh, so you're going to have to go to go to where it's at. You're going to have to convince somebody to cut it, which is going to start killing the plant. You're going to have to then transport it back. And God help you if you make a mistake on the way, because then you have to start over again. Well, especially considering the fact that there's a lot of countries that just don't want you to bring um, foreign plants into the you know within its borders. Um, Canada's really kind of leery about bringing um, foreign-growing plants because I'm pretty sure that it's all over the U.S. as well, but there's this kind of weird plant called Eurasian water milfoil, which is uh, it's a weed that actually transports itself by, you know, like little pieces, cuttings basically, that are trapped on uh, boat motors and stuff that, yeah. you know, once they dry out they can survive for you know a while and then they get transported into a new water body and then grow prolifically the yeah. yeah the the one that we've got here uh in the southeastern united states is kudzu yes the kudzu it's, vine that terrible evil thing oh god you gotta fight that thing constantly i finally poisoned a piece of ground a little one like two square foot patch of ground that had kudzu growing out of it. I poisoned that that ground so much that nothing would grow there. <laughs> well, I was dumping my uh, my uh, chemicals from uh, developing pictures and developing uh, film when I was a photographer into that patch specifically to kill the kudzu. But it's so poisoned now, nothing grows there. Naturally, you know, and I'm and I feel bad about that now, you know, at seven, sixteen year old idiot. <laughs> I true. didn't even think about it. It's true. I mean, when you're a teenager, you don't think about those things down the line. Um, and it occurs to me just as I was opening the cupboard because I have a little bottle of Captain Morgan spiced rum. I've been thinking about trying to get all these like potion bottles, and I just just sort of realized that like all these liquor bottles that are sample sized could mm -hmm. be used for that except a lot of them are plastic and unfortunately that's what this one is yeah what i would do is uh i found potion bottles that are absolutely perfect down at walmart uh over at a craft store they're bud vases they're designed to hold one bud you know and hmm. some water and look decorative but when you don't have the bud or the water in there, you've got this nice globe that's probably, oh, about an inch and a half sphere. And this little tiny stem that comes up that you can close with a cork. And you can see the contents, and it looks like a potion bottle. Nice. 
Yeah, unfortunately, those things are a little pricey when you buy those specifically. Like if you go to a, if you can find one, that is, to a uh, a place that, like for instance, a scientific supply store or whatever that sells little vials, um, they do tend to be rather pricey, like two dollars a pop or something like that. Yeah. The, the bud bases um, that I found were seventy five cents each. Ooh, not yeah, bad. Not bad at all. Probably translates to seven or eight dollars per. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're importing them. Um, okay, there were a couple of other things I wanted to mention uh, about the broom closet. Um, we were talking about. Oh, it. and I'm sitting here looking at this bottle, this skull bottle, still, kind of thinking, alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Okay, anyway, yes, Brian is very right on the you suddenly become the representation of all pagandom to all the people that you know. So, you know, be Don't a good example. fuck it up for all of us. Yeah. If you get confrontational, get in their face, start screaming at them, then when they meet me, they're going to see the pentacle and think that I'm going to get confrontational and scream in their face and everything. See, and... One of the things I think I found most frequently was that it wasn't only baby pagans, but like, unfortunately, and I don't mean to be ageist in any way, it tended to be teenage pagans who were like, oh my god, you guys are just evil and wrong, and the church is a terrible thing. I'm guessing anyone who says that doesn't quite understand the sort of esoteric nature of Christian teachings. Mm. So don't get all hostile about other people's beliefs unless you actually took the time to learn them. Um, because most Christians don't know the like depth of their own beliefs. They, they tend to be sort of the congregational sitters down in the pews that are, mm. you know, I'm so good cause I'm tithing 10% every week, um, et cetera. And it's like, most of those guys don't know their own religion, so don't get bitchy about it. Yeah, I mean, one, yeah, uh, everybody gets passionate. Uh, there's no, pa- there, there's no passion like a converted passion. Um, <laughs> oh God, yeah. You you get really frothing at the mouth. Um, here, take this track, take this, take this, take this, and your religion is wrong because yada 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 yada. Okay. Um, newsflash, the only person your religion is right for is you. That's it. Um, if you happen to find other people that can walk the same pathway as you, that believe similar things as you, that's fantastic. Do it. But for the most part, your religion fits you, is right for you, and you are the only one that is going to be taking that particular path. Okay? Now, there... Unfortunately, and this is where we get into the friends and family side of things, there are going to be people that don't understand and don't want to understand. Okay, You can try to educate them. You can speak to them. You can be kind and polite and gentle. And they're just not going to listen. And unfortunately, at that point, you just have to go, okay, they're stupid assholes, and I'm not going to talk to them about this. And essentially write them off as an audience for what you believe. Um, you're just going to have to put up with how they act. You're, you're going to have to decide on your own how much you're willing to put up with before you go, that's it, I'm out of here, you're out of my life. 
Um, I mean, my father is a is a deacon in a real, real Southern Baptist church. Um, they're not snake handlers, but they're close. <laughs> um, you might as well be if you're a Southern Baptist. My goodness. No, there's a lot of Southern Baptists that I have a lot of respect for, but... Uh, he's very frothing at the mouth. Every few weeks, I would get invitation. I I got tickets to uh, the Passion of Christ, where nice. the you know from him for free, because he wanted me to go see it and get converted. He sent me uh, motivational books by various pastors. Um, <laughs> you know the you can you can make yourself right with God and your life will go good. You know, and I get them, and I sigh very deeply, and donate them to the Y <laughs> or something. What else are you going to do with them? Yeah, pretty much. I'm not going to read them. I'm not going to read them. You know, I'm not going to burn them. It's a book. You know, mm-hmm. and if books are good for holding up tables. Well, I'm of the opinion that no knowledge is ever lost, uh, and no knowledge is bad knowledge. I'll tell y'all something. Um, the reason that I came to paganism in the first place is because I saw all the flaws with Christianity. Mary's story of finding paganism is at thirteen, at twelve years old, she did her own comparative religions class. Seriously, that wouldn't what, surprise me. What wound up happening was. Um, she was in. Uh, she was Catholic. I mean, very believing Catholic. Uh, was going to be a nun. Go to Africa. Get martyred for her faith. Was going to become a saint. Uh, I planned to have my head chopped off by the time I was twenty-four. <laughs> Pretty much. And you know, she uh, hoped that her local pastor, or her local father, uh, got elected as pope when um, uh, it changed over from. Uh, to John, to John, the f- whatever it was back then. JP two. Uh, yeah, no, not JP two, because he came. I remember when he was elected. No, this is before that. Um, sure. Anyway, she um, she was very believing. She, you know, it's a mortal sin to touch a consecrated host. And her being her, she flopped down the pew one day. Her mouth popped open. The host flew out of her mouth and hit the back of the pew and was sliding to the ground. (laughs) Well, then. Jesus is on the back of the pew, and Jesus is going to fall on the floor. Now, at the time, this was a mortal sin. This was you go to hell, you never get out. You burn for eternity. Okay, you are the worst of the worst because you are not permitted to touch a consecrated host. So she's, at 11 years old, going back and forth in her brain as to, do I commit a mortal sin or do I let Jesus fall on the ground? Do I commit a mortal sin or let Jesus fall on the ground? She finally grabbed the host and stuck it back in her mouth. And, <laughs> and went through two weeks of absolute psychological hell because of how guilty she felt for touching Jesus. Okay? <laughs> yes. She okay, finally... apparently the rule is the consecrated host is Jesus' penis, so don't touch it. Oh my god. I did not need to know that. <laughs> oh anyway. god. Anyway, okay. Moving forward. <laughs> Vatican II happens. 
And they come along and they say, oh, it's okay for lay people to touch uh, consecrated hosts now. Here, have yes. them, pass them out like a Frisbee. You in the back. You want one? There you go. It's true. V2 is a very, very strange thing. And Mary went, wait a minute. You put a child through two weeks of hell, and this isn't a rule from God? <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> well, I mean, consider the fact that the Mormon church had, you know, variegated and changing rules that just sort of changed with the times or changed yeah. with Joseph Smith's whims, you know, like it I find that the veracity of a religion that is so flexible that it can basically go back on its own teachings probably indicates it's not quite as serious as it tries to pass itself off. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's what prompted Mary's crisis of faith and her researching Judaism, researching the apocryphal texts, researching Gnosticism, researching Jainism, uh, researching Islam, uh, and quite a lot of other things. She finally figured out that she would be best served to be an Orthodox Jew, except she was female. True. And Orthodox Judaism for men is great. Orthodox Judaism for women, not so much. <laughs> well, I suppose it depends, too, on what you uh, come out of, right? Like, if you come out of the conservative Catholic Church where, you know, women are wearing head coverings to mass, etc., then becoming an Orthodox Jew isn't really that much of a transition because you're only incorporating the 613 laws of Kashrut, um, the kosher laws, uh, which kind of suddenly dictate what you're wearing, what you're eating, the way you're, you know, getting it on in the bedroom, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can only have sex 130 days out of the year. What? It's true. There's there's such weird restrictions. But, I mean, the Catholic Church has the same kind of, like, super adherent kind of rules If 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 you happen to be, like, really fanatic about it um but so yeah anyway these types of rules and things people really don't like having the screw-ups in their beliefs shoved in their face okay they don't want to hear that um the reason that jesus scourged all the money lenders out of the temple was because uh they decided to do it on Sunday. He didn't care about them any other day. It was just on that one day. They don't want to hear that uh, an old bald guy called two bears to tear up 63 kids because they went, oh my God, you're bald. <laughs> it's true. They don't, want um, to hear about, they don't want to hear about incest between Abraham and his two daughters because they're the only ones left after the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, and the, I mean, there's a lot of things that, like, the more you know, the uh, better off you are when you're discussing that kind of thing. Because a lot of people don't know the, the history of their own beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, so if you confront them as a knowing person who's actually studied that sort of thing, you know, and you can explain to them that, well, I decided because of my own research into the subject that... The fact that um, 
there are apocryphal texts that were left out of the Bible um, that speak more along the, the sort of teachings that the Gospel of John talked about um, or, you know, that talked about a completely different role for Judas in, in the whole passion story. Oh, yes. Um, Etc. I mean, if you can talk to them about those things, then they're kind of like left thinking that maybe they're wrong. Well, no, I mean, they're not going to be wrong in their own mind. They're going to be like, well, I suppose if you want to look at things like that, then you could question it. But um, I mean, and yeah, I mean, the reality is, yeah. I mean, yeah, because one of the things that I was shocked to discover was that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the first three books of the Bible, were lifted in whole from Sumerian sacred texts 10,000 years before they supposedly happened. And you go, what? And then you start comparing the mythologies and comparing the stories, and, you, and, and the only conclusion you can come to is that they plagiarized the entire Old Testament. And it's well, like, and I think <laughs> you get into like the teachings of the New Testament, um, and if you look, if you're familiar with other religions that predate it, um, you can look at Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, um, etc. Uh, and so I mean, Egyptian mystery traditions, Greek Mithras. philosophy. Um, suddenly, Cult of Mithras. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, Mithras, Apollo, you know, Orpheus, Fannies, etc. I mean, you go back pre-Christian, and suddenly you're looking at the New Testament in a whole new light, and it it really becomes a matter of picking your poison. I mean, yeah, definitely. the options for religion and spirituality become so different when you are familiar with pre-Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. um, but I suppose it depends, too, on um, particular inclinations. I mean, not everyone's going to be, like, taking a scholarly approach to their spiritual path. And, you know, a lot of people want that experiential, direct, you know, approach to a belief Gnosis. system. Um, Gnosis and UPG. Well, exactly. And a lot of people, you know, there are other people who will prefer a more physical approach, you know, they, they like to get into the very physical rituals or, or praying with rosaries or doing yoga or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and realistically, if you're familiar with both Hindu and Gnostic teachings, you could interchange them without even blinking. Um, Pretty much. And, you know, you would just be adding that physical dimension of yogic practice to your particular spiritual path um, and if you read into the Gnostics deep enough you start realizing that they did practice some of it the controlled breathing and the meditative postures and things like that so it's not a real stretch to see that they were you know maybe doing a, a, a cat back or you know a donkey kick or something like that while they were meditating on it and then if you look into Kabbalah um you see the overlaps with Hinduism and Gnosticism and, you know, there's mo a modern sort of um, extension of Kabbalah that includes kind of yogic practice. Um, and, you know, if you read the Zohar, um, then the Old Testament comes into a completely different light because, you know, suddenly 
the Genesis story is like, wow, this is so different from what I understood it to be. Because in Kabbalah, um, the advanced uh, Jewish mysticism, they don't take Genesis as a literal story. Um, in fact, if you were to probably address like a, um, a Hasidic Jew with the idea that Genesis was literal, he would probably laugh in your face. Yeah. Um, and if you read the, the text close enough, um, and it's not really that hard to do, uh, there's two creation stories in the King James Version Bible. I mean, you have the original creation that was uh, done by uh, God, and then the next chapter, you have another creation exactly the same, done well, by Yahweh. Exactly, <laughs> and the... the um... The theory is, is that the um, the first chapter is a conglomerate of deities that is addressed as essentially the is. The Elohim, who are... And, yeah, and the whole conglomerate created everything. And then Yahweh, because he was a jealous little snot, decided he had to have his own special people. So he recreated everything again. Yes. The Gnostics see the the whole creation story in Genesis as a like a kind of an ego trip on Yahweh's part because you know, there was like there was the creation and then there was like Yahweh who's like um I want to be special so he created his own faulty failed world which you know we live in and his whole thing was that he wanted to be worshipped and. So what you end up with is the whole notion of the the existence of the Lucifer character as what is termed God in the in the creation story. Um, it's just a matter of ego tripping, you know. So I mean, and then you've got like the uh, the Book of Enoch that talks about the Watchers, who are the angels that taught mankind to function, basically. And then you get into the point where um, Cain slays Abel and God says, go and take a wife from uh, this land. And according to the text, the only people that are alive at that point are Adam, Eve, Seth, and Cain. So where did he get a wife from? And that well, points exactly. very strongly to an entire different culture that was already out there that had nothing to do with the culture of the Bible. But Absolutely. Anyway, yeah, we're getting really far afield here. I want to pull it back a little bit. Um, talk to any pagan elder, anybody that's been practicing for a long period of time. You will find that they have a story where they started out as another religion. They went and tried to reinforce their faith by studying their religion in depth and studied themselves right out of a religion. It's true. And then some of us grew up with a completely non-theistic, unreligious background that happened upon a book with a pentacle sitting on an airport bookshelf. And that led you into, you know, studying the Salem witch trials and Wicca and witchcraft and shamanism and all that kind of crap. At least that's what happened to me. Um, I still stand by the story that this book was sitting on a bare shelf with like five feet to either side of it completely empty <laughs> um, kind of just 
on the shelf in the middle of the store and I, you know, kind of walked up to it because it had a pentacle on it. And I was like, this is kind of interesting. Read me, read me, read me. It's true. And it's, um, I want to say her name was Catherine Paulson, um, Book of Witchcraft and Magic or something like oh, that. Oh, that thing? Yeah. Oh, that's what I started with. It is the <laughs> worst book in the world. She I know. All, but... She pulls all kinds of stuff out of um, uh, texts from the alchemists, um, from the Key of Solomon, the Gotia, uh, the Book of Abra Merlin, um, and all of these other unrelated texts, and puts them all together into a dif- – and from the witch trials, and from – all over Folk and magic them, and all kinds of crazy shit. Puts them into together to make a definitive work of witchcraft. And I read it and I was like, "You've got to be fucking kidding me!" There's more to it than this. <laughs> yeah, there. It was. It was a weird little book, and I don't know. It, it started me down the path, um, but ultimately, you know, I went through my Wiccan phase and. I'm kind of kind of thinking about combining Wicca and Druidry, but it ultimately was Druidry that kind of caught my eye. Yeah. Um, but Wicca, yeah, I mean, I've done the whole like researching into Christian history and all that kind of crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of the overlaps and, you know, studying Egyptian mythology and so on. So then you add Zoroaster into the mix and the Bible just falls apart completely. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's fantastically interesting, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people who have been misled by you know the literalistic um, sort of exoteric church that exists nowadays um, that they believe is the true religion. But yeah. for those I mean, of you that haven't studied it yet, uh, Zoroaster postulated a deity of all good and a deity of all bad and separated the universe into good and bad, and that's it. And it's the interplay between those two forces that cause everything. Well, and isn't that weird, though, that like New Age spirituality um, kind of talks about everything is love and fear, and if you're not guided by love, you're guided by fear. And it's so Zoroastrian in that dichotomy. It's like, wait a second here. It is. On and the when, other hand. And when you start realizing that Zoroaster came up with this idea uh, back right around the time that they were deciding what chapters and books went into the Bible, um, then you realize that things were cherry-picked to perpetuate God and Satan. All good. <laughs> they were all, all true. They were completely true all the time. Every word questioning the real world never <laughs> um but yeah i mean ultimately you can tear the bible apart and find all kinds of problems with it and you um, can do that with any faith including wicca and paganism it's true so you know it's don't 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 become the the new convert that goes uh shoving your pentacles in your grandparents faces you know just be yourself have well, and don't be too attached to the whole history of your religion because, unfortunately, when I started dabbling in Wicca forever ago, um, 25 years ago, um, there was a lot of popular misconceptions about the history of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you would read authors telling you that Wicca dates back 
thousands of years, and you know it's Gardner, unbroken. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it would be like, wait a second, no, 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 no. I mean, you've got like Buckland, and well, no, you've got uh, Gardner coming up with his Book of Shadows in the mid fifties or whatever after the witchcraft laws had been repealed in right. the UK. So wait a minute. Let's look back at that more seriously. How could that be thousands of years old when that's the first anyone's heard of it? And just, you know, by way of information, I think we covered all of this in the myths of paganism. Um, no, Wicca was based on things that are thousands of years old, like herbalism, like uh, talking to – watching the animals around you to see how they're reacting – uh, weather watching and omens and things like that. And that's what was connected into that Wicca to give it sort of this patina of ancientness. And unfortunately, everybody grabbed hold of that and ran with it. And it became Wicca is that we practice today is the same thing that they practiced 10,000 years ago in the Indus Valley. And I looked yes. at that statement and I went, what the fuck? <laughs> It's true because after all, they're calling the quarters in in the dark caves, you know, where they're barely scribbling animals on the walls with like chewed up sticks and stuff. So and clearly, calling on air, earth, fire, and water, and the chimeras and the hippocampus and everything that came out of alchemy hundreds of thousands of years later. <laughs> it's true. I mean, clearly, casting a circle calling on the elements those are ancient practices <laughs> yes they are but i always wondered you know if if wicca as we practice it today is exactly the same which version of wicca is exactly the same because there's what 200 different versions now well my version the one that i'm practicing right now clearly is the one that's ancient because it's the one that i chose oh, and so i they, they live... practiced with viking runes back then too I see. Well, obviously, <laughs> and angelic script, and you know, Theban, and all kinds of those. Those were ancient texts. I mean, you know, you've got scribbles on the on the cave walls that, that are talking about the river. what exactly those paintings are, because yes, they were, we're in gonna... Theban, and no one could understand them, and just this. <laughs> yes, it the the myth of that of the ancientness gets very very ridiculous very quickly. So don't get attached to that history because I'll guarantee you it's wrong. Acknowledge that there are elements that came from ancient times. Try to identify those elements. Try to incorporate how they did it back then into your practice now. But realize that you are living in modern times. You are not having to go out with a bow and flint arrows and hunt down a mastodon so that your village can eat for the next week. Well, you're not having to, but it's nice to have an option. Yeah, but, you know, there are no mastodons to, to, to go down. Says you, know. you. Oh, well. You're uh, obviously not going into the obscure corners of northern or of the northern hemisphere. Oh, so you've seen a yeti, huh? Naturally. <laughs> I was raped by a yeti. Oh, goodness. That's why you're so hairy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, anyway. Uh, 
so yes, there are, like I said, there are elements, but you have to draw those elements out and make them relevant to now. I mean, any religion that you have or any faith path or any spirituality that is ancient, that is based on ancient principles, has to change with the times that you're living in, or it's a static faith and will die. You know, I mean, that's just basic. Change has to happen. If it doesn't happen, things get destroyed. That's a basic principle of the Tao Te Ching, that the principle of life is change, that the principle of death is static. Mm-hmm. And um, you see it in any culture. I mean, any culture that doesn't change dies away because it can't adapt. Mm-hmm. Okay. So having said all of that, uh, we are an hour and about ten minutes into the show. So we're going to do the um, begging part now. And while Agreed. I run off... I'll be back. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Uh, I was going to call it, but he called it first. So, all right. Um, yes, we do listen to our listeners. Like I said, uh, Rebecca wrote us and uh, gave us some good ideas. So we're incorporating that. And so, you know, let us know. Let us know if you're listening to us. Let us know that you like what you hear. We've got egos that need to be stroked, too. So we like hearing that you enjoyed this show or you felt that this statement made in this show was very, very on point and very direct to you, and that it resonated in you and it changed your outlook. I mean, we love hearing about that. We really do. Um, Our website that you can go to and find all the old podcasts uh, for Tarot Talk and for Magical Musings is, obviously enough, magicalmusings.net. Uh, we have a contact form there on the front page that you can write to us through, or you can just email us directly, joy at magic muse- magicalmusings.net or brian at magicalmusings.net, and we'll you know share the information back and forth. Um, if you have some money to throw into the kitty, we really appreciate it, uh, and it would be great, and it would be a heck of a motivator for us. Because, honestly, I don't want to go back to work. I want to do this all the time. (laughs) But I have bills to pay, (laughs) and so does Brian. So I'm going to turn it over to him and let him do it now while I go to the little girl's room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so, I mean, we each do our our thing. Um, We do put time into the shows um, beyond recording them, and... We uh, do appreciate donations. Um, you know, we one of the big things, too, that, that we really, really do appreciate is feedback. Um, I don't know if Joy's mentioned it already, but when we hear back from you folks um, who listen to our show, um, either, you know, you may have just discovered it or you've listened regularly for, I guess it's been years now that we've been doing it, um, we we like to hear what you like or don't like or, you know, if a particular show has caused you to think about things that, you know, you've been exploring or dealing with. Um, and it, uh, you know, it's nice to hear from you guys. Um, Brian at MagicalMusings.net or Joy at MagicalMusings.net, all one word, no K in magic. Um if you 
want to tell us we suck, you know, if you want to tell us stop swearing, um, we're going to, you know, read it and we're going to laugh at you. But the reality is it's the way we talk. We've never had an issue with that before. Um, There's been times that it's gotten a little over the top sometimes, and we've generally walked ourselves back. But this is an adult program. Um, What we hope that will happen is that we will tell you, the listener, all of this stuff, and you will take it and incorporate it into your lives and pass it on to your children without swearing. (laughs) Although I'm sure your children swear more than you do, so. Probably. (laughs) Anyway, did you get the um, Tumblr addresses? Um, I didn't go to Tumblr. Um, I mentioned email addresses. Which However, okay. okay. Uh, um, but yeah, cosmic. <laughs> yeah, cos- <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna dual uh, promo our Tumblrs. No, uh, he's cosmic hyphen rebirth dot tumblr dot com. I am wide hyphen worlds hyphen joy dot tumblr dot com. If you want to follow us there. Uh, I will warn you, I get really angsty. There's very little paganism on there. Um, there's more paganism on Brian's blog. Uh, I tend to talk about sexuality more than anything else. Um, <laughs> and I I do have to admit, I'm anti-feminist, so that does kind of inspire a lot of flame wars um, that I don't generally publish, except for the one constant person who's been bugging me for weeks and weeks and weeks calling me a moron and you know telling me my dick is tiny and so on um i can't judge so i don't know he's in ontario i'm in tennessee so so <laughs> yeah sides of the um, continent. it's like a special feeling that this person and i have but you can read all the messages that we've exchanged because i posted them on my blog because i just got tired of it and you know there the okay this show is a look at it's essentially our ministry you know you talk about uh Billy Graham you talk about you know all of the other um Christians that are up on TV and talking and speaking to audiences this is our version of that um, without the thumping of bibles and so on true lay your hands on the television and let me be healed <laughs> Give me your money and God will you know see. <laughs> if you do get healed by listening to our podcast on your computer or your phone or whatever, by all means, do send us an email. We would love to know that. <laughs> that would be we, great. <laughs> that would be a great way to rake in some cash. <laughs> I'm sorry. We are the you know healing ministry of paganism, etc. Come um, to us and embrace the Lord and Lady. <laughs> it's true. So, yeah, I mean, if you happen to be experiencing miraculous healing because you listen to our podcast, tell us, you know, let us totally take advantage of the fact that you got healed. Yes, Uh, and we will exploit it. (laughs) So thoroughly. But, yeah, the the podcast and uh, my website, AaronsJournal.com, and probably Brian's Facebook page because you said you had one. Um. I have one for Woodwose Radio. Um, basically, just search Woodwose Radio um, on Facebook. You can like that. Those are the avenues where you can see our spirituality, where what we think needs to be changed, uh, us talking about paganism and pagan issues and all of that stuff. Okay. The Tumblr blogs, on the other hand, are a look into our personal life. 
They're coming into our room, picking up our diaries, opening it up to a random page and reading something. Okay. That is also very true. <laughs> so, yeah, we get a, we're, we're a lot more loose on uh, the Tumblr pages. Uh, we're a lot more ourselves, which is a lot more than what pre- we present here. Um, yeah, it's very true. I mean, I don't have a penis temple put up on the podcast. <laughs> you can see that. That's one of my posts this morning, so... And I've got a lot of bondage and stuff on there. (laughs) And naked women. It's awkward to post that on a podcast. Yes, it is. It is kind of a little bit. But no, one of the things, I I remembered one of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, Brian said earlier that people are a lot more than just their spirituality or just something else. One of the statements that really hit me sideways and made me really reevaluate a lot of things that I thought. Um, Whoopi Goldberg back in the late 90s, I think, had a late-night talk show called Whoopi. Uh, She had on there uh, G. Gordon Liddy. Now, I don't know how many of you remember his name. He's a conservative radio host now, um, right up there with... um, Rush Limbaugh and the others? Yeah, right up there with Rush Limbaugh. But G. Gordon Liddy is the one person that was convicted and sent to jail for the Watergate thing that happened back in the 70s. Okay. Wow. He spent a lot of time in jail. He learned a lot of stuff. He changed in a lot of ways. And he got on that show, and he was looking at her, and he was talking to her. And she said something about his wife and because he mentioned his wedding ring. Um, and he said, well, look, when you see me as the guy that was convicted for Watergate, you're seeing one facet off of a diamond. There are so many other things there that you're not seeing. How can you judge the quality of a diamond from one facet? It's true. You have to see the whole thing in order to understand it. And I went, wow, just wow. I mean, my brain, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and and the brain kind of went and just blew up and it, and it made me reevaluate a lot of things you know so that's something that you need to be aware of you're presenting one piece of your personality to other people when you're so much more be careful which piece you're showing them and it's true i mean it it makes sense too that you you have to realize as well that you are representing your experience of paganism to a people, you know, to whoever you happen to be talking to. Um, don't presume to to speak on behalf of everyone else because ultimately, your version of paganism isn't going to be mine. Um, mm-hmm. You might be all about like social activism, causes, and what have you. I might be more into like skedaddling into the woods and you know loving trees in intimate ways. Yeah, and I'm more into diving into my navel and contemplating my place in the universe. So, you know, it's all paganism. We're all related. We all worship the gods. We all honor nature, but we do it in different ways. Exactly. And, you know, so if you happen to know someone who's a hostile, bitchy, you know, conservative, whatever, and they're critical of your path, um, just realize as well that They're only representing their version of whatever they believe. Mm -hmm. So don't take it. Go ahead. Don't take it all as, you know, the way that things are because you don't know. 
And understand also that, like he said, they're presenting one facet of their personality also. And, you know, some of the things that other faith paths are ordered to do as part of their beliefs is to proselytize. That's not a pagan way. That's not something that we do. But that's something that they do. You go, thank you very much. I don't appreciate it. Bye. But your uh, life would be drastically improved if you became pagan and <laughs> sent money to us. Well, you know, like I was, I was filling up the car the other day at the gas station, and you know, I'm just, I pulled up, I'm in my wig, I have no makeup on, just kind of schlubbing it out, and I'm, you know, it's cold, and I have the the handle into the car, and I'm filling it up, and this lady, you know, in uh, and her husband or somebody in a, a SUV pulls up, she gets out, and she comes over and she tries to give me copies of the Watchtower. You know, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I thank you very much for that. And I, you know, appreciate you taking the time to come over here. But I'll be honest, they're just going to wind up in the trash. So why don't you go ahead and hang on to them and give them to somebody that will that needs them. And she was very polite about it. She went, OK, thank you very much. Went and got back in the SUV and they took off. Yes, actually, JWs are very polite about that. Um, they don't want to be confrontational. They want to represent their path as the most pacifistic, you know, approach that you can have to Christianity, mm-hmm. um, which I've always appreciated. Um, I spent a, a, probably a year and a half or two years talking to a couple of uh, JW missionaries and they gave me a copy of their Bible at, you know, at a late point in that, um, you know, and the one, like the woman who was like sort of my main touch point was, she was quite friendly and, you know, fun to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, never yeah. ever crossed my threshold though. Cause I never actually invited them in. I had a feeling that they probably would unleash some sort of terrible evil if I did. So <laughs> They would stay forever. <laughs> You'd never be rid of them. It's Actually, true. One of the jokes that somebody wanted to pull at one point was to uh, do up a tape outline on the front of their porch, uh, splash some red paint near the uh, head area, and uh, glue a couple copies of the watchtower down underneath the hand area. <laughs> I th- <laughs> when I heard it, I, I, I thought that was kind of ridiculous, but <laughs> to keep them away. I'd do it with it's, the Mormons. <laughs> it's true. It's it's funny because like there are there with both of those missionary sets, you you hear ways to deter them. And I've heard with JWs, all you have to do is put a blood donor sticker up on your door, or you know somehow imply that you support things they don't believe and they will walk away from your house. Um, with Mormons, I can't imagine what the hell you would put up on your door that would deter them. Actually, Maybe a uh, rainbow flag? Actually, well, actually, no, they changed that. Uh, the rainbow, they're very LGBT friendly now, which I find very strange. Uh, I was raised Mormon, so I can say that. Um, no, one of the things that I heard doing was you open up the door, um, you know, naked, and when they want to start talking to you, you say, well, wait a second, I'm in the middle of a ritual, we're sacrificing, well, wait a minute, are you a virgin? Because a lot of the Mormon missionaries are. They don't have sex until they're married, and that will make them uncomfortable enough to run. However, (laughs) that is... 
Interesting. <laughs> Are you a virgin? <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's it's one of those occasions where it would it's good for shock value. Once again, uh, long term relations between the religions not so much. Yes, unfortunately, uh, ecumenism is not forwarded when you're answering doors naked and being hostile to the virgins. I mean. I mean if- by all means, you know, celebrate their virginity if you feel the need, but <laughs> also invite them in to, like, dispel with it. Besides, um, remember, since we're a fertility religion or fertility sets of religions, virginity is actually an anathema. Um, true. Sexual activity is what is praised and looked for. <laughs> it's also you know. true because sex is a sacred practice. Even with any other religion, I mean, you can look into, like, Orthodox Judaism, and sex is actually a sacred act. Um, you know, I'm sure it is the same with Catholics, um, but, you know, I don't know I enough don't know. of their in-depth teachings to be able to say that, certainly. Um, Neither however, do I. <clears throat> uh, if you ever want to confront someone with the homophobia that their religion supposedly dispenses um you could also mention that jesus hung out with a young man in the garden of gethsemane and there was no actual explanation except in the secret gospel of mark about what he was doing with that young man uh, so show? i'm certain there was some sort of sexual thing going on there hmm. um, well you know in the in the um gospel of timothy and a few others it's implied that mary magdalene was actually jesus's wife and that she got pregnant and had a child after he died, and that that is the Holy Grail. Um, well, and the French story, like there's a French story that um, the Da Vinci Mary Code came with the Devo- It predates the Da Vinci Code, actually. Uh, there's a story of um, Mary Magdalene arriving at this small French town on the Mediterranean mm-hmm. uh, with a girl named Sarah and a slave, um, and. The girl is Jesus' daughter and so on and so forth. So yeah. it's it's where they got the, the beginnings of the plot for the Da Vinci Code. Uh, I know what you're talking about. There was a long – on the used to be about History Channel um, talking about the origins of the Da Vinci Code, and they went into that in depth. Uh, there was a guy that actually claimed to be the descendant of Jesus, uh, direct line. And his claims were discounted and proven false, but still, that, that takes a lot of balls to <laughs> claim that. Yeah, so, especially when there's no genetic proof of your uh, claim. I mean, Jesus, you know, dematerialized. How can you prove your genetic link? It's in the, the shroud of Turin. You you take a hair from the shroud of Turin. You test the DNA on that. <laughs> Obviously. Obvious. Okay, so um, we got friends and family. We got uh, the in the broom closet and coming out. Um, we did our digression. We did our begging section. So what we've got left is familiars and spirit helpers. Um, <laughs> we kind of touched on this somewhat uh, in one of the very early episodes when we were talking about spirits and uh, the astral plane and everything. It's probably one of the ones with the gods. 
Um, but we had mentioned that we were going to go into it more in depth later, and so here we are. Um, one of the things that... Okay, first we're going to give the definition of a familiar, as most people understand it, as the layperson understands it, is uh, an animal companion, usually a cat, who uh, gives power and ability to the pagan the witch in question. Um, she tends to get the abilities to change into that form. She gets to use the senses of that form. Uh, if you read AD&D or any of the other role-playing games, uh, there's a lot of other benefits to having it. Um, but or this if is, you happen to think of Aragon, um, he was uh, able to use the dragon's senses and stuff. Yeah. And that's similar to it. Um, the the lore is, is that the, the witch, and it's always a female witch, it's never a male witch, a uh, female witch could change into that form uh, at will, and they could ride the, the cat uh, like a loa would ride uh, a human during a ritual, okay? Uh, their spirit would merge with the cat, and they would be the cat for all intents and purposes. Now, pretty much any scientific thought on this process at all uh, shows just how bogus it is. Um, there's a few dozen caveats, though. First off, um, in the Bible it defines uh, a familiar as a spirit that is not embodied. Uh, King Solomon, I believe it was, uh, sends his men out to find a uh, the witch of Endor who has a, a, a familiar spirit okay, uh, to get some divination and see if he was going to win this battle or something and uh, they come back and they have it and it's implied from that passage that a familiar is actually a spirit helper uh, a disembodied ghost for lack of a better term uh, who hangs around and gives information um, divination and is the connection between the witch and the spirit world. They're kind of the intercessor. Um, when you start applying it to witchcraft now and to Wicca now and paganism now, that's not that far off, actually. Uh, if you go back to um, the Seth books and to Edgar Cayce and to a lot of other um, belief systems, there is a continual reference to spirits nearby to you that help you out. Um, a lot of the other cultures have ideas of this same thing. I mean, there's a lot of warrior cultures that had the belief that um, once you, enemies that you kill in combat uh, stay with you and help you out and protect you. Uh, headhunters and Celtic uh, warriors would take the head because they figured that that was where the, the spirit was seated at and that that person would be with them from then on. So this is a recurring thing through all cultures and all religions. Okay. It's not just cats. It's true. Bring it to modern days, and what you start seeing is that it's not just cats, and it's not just spirits. 
there have been, for a long, long time, um, about three years straight, I did uh, the Cats of the Craft page for Witchbox, for the Witch's Voice. Um, and I would assemble the page, and I'd put the descriptions and everything, and I'd put it up for um, for uh, Fritz. And I would get uh, emails from other people uh, with their snakes and their dogs and their parrot and the bat. And some I had one that was a ferret. Uh, I had somebody else uh, show me their familiar horse. You know, wanting it to go up on the same page. It should be changed to Familiars of the Craft instead of Cats of the Craft. Um, and I would try to, you know, change that around and add them in there. And he and Fritz would poo-poo it every time. Being, because the purpose of the Cats of the Craft page was to show how much pagans love their cats. Specifically. <laughs> because... Well, because when it was started, the the prevailing attitude was that they're witches. They're going to take. They're going to adopt black cats out of the shelters on ha- in October, and they're going to cut them open on Halloween to sacrifice them to their evil pagan gods. Oh yes, or vivisection of all kinds. You know, as a warning or something. And you still see all of this. I mean, shelters won't adopt cats out, black cats out in particular. During October, why? Because somebody said that a that a witch was going to take it and kill it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're thinking of us. I think they're thinking of the Santorians and the Voodoo, but <laughs> they don't do that. animal sacrifice is a whole different thing. That's but that true. Was, but seeing all the variety with the dogs and the cats and the horses and everything like that, it made me realize that the concept of a familiar goes past um, just cats and just cats of a certain color. Back in medieval times, um, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story, actually. The reason that the plague became so uh, prominent is because people were scared of cats. And killed them. It's true. It's a weird, twisted development, but that's exactly it. Mm-hmm. They got uh, there was a um, something happened, and the cat population just exploded in this one town. And at the same time, um, one of the holy rollers came through, claiming that um, there were witches in town. And so obviously, the cats and the witches got conflated together, especially when. Um, Little boy throws a rock at an old lady. She injures her arm. Uh, she can't use it too well. And two days later, they see a black cat with the same limb injured. You know, and then they put two, and two together and get 22 and say, oh, she's the, the witch. And so they go out and they kill all the cats. Well, the cats being dead mean that the rats and the mice proliferated or profligated and there are hundreds of thousands of more than there should be, and they're the ones that carry the fleas that carry the bubonic plague that wiped out the town. Exactly. <coughs> and that's, that, children, is why religion can be a bad thing. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry, okay. I was drinking some coffee because my throat You're is going to dying. <laughs> But yeah, that's so the the cats got um, associated with witches. Um, the witch finders uh, at the same time 
were coming through looking for uh, demon familiars. It was believed at the time uh, and propagated by the witch's hammer, the Malleus Maleficarum, that um, all witches had a demon spirit given to them by Satan to help them out. Sounds like a familiar, doesn't it? It uh, really does. Animals. Although, folks, if you ever want to read the most misogynistic book you've ever read, read the, the Malleus Maleficarum, because that is so, so fucked up. Yeah, I mean, it's got things in there like, you don't look the witch in the eye, you might feel sympathy for her. That's you under her spell. Yeah. She's putting you under her spell and to keep you from torturing her, and uh, so don't look at them while you're torturing them. Um, you had to interrogate to the third degree, which uh, there's different levels of torture listed in there. The first degree is, you know, you've got a sunburn. Second degree, you've got a few broken bones. The third degree is to torture to the point where you die. That's true. Um, which is where we get the term, give them the third degree. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's really an eye-opener about, and considering that it was a forgery... <laughs> well, the, the, book the fact is that the dude who wrote it was he he wanted to legitimize it by like forging a letter um from one of the, the prominent like the pope dudes at the time. Was it the, No, I don't think it was I think it was a bishop. One of the two authors is actually had nothing to do with that book. He was like stuck into it because the guy wrote a letter in his name and then said, yeah, see, he he follows it. He believes that I'm right. So my book is legitimate now. Okay. Um, the, the story that I got was that uh, they – the two people wrote it. They submitted it for approval uh, from the Catholic Church. Uh, the Pope rejected it because at the time the entire Catholic attitude towards witchcraft is – it is uh, against the policy of the church to accept witchcraft as being real. Probably. That, that was the entire sum total up to that point in time of the church's attitude towards witchcraft. They submitted it to approval. The pope rejected it. They submitted it again. The cardinals rejected it. They forged a letter from the pope legitimizing it and put that in there saying, see, the pope believes. It's possible. I've, I've not thought about it in a hell of a long time. So, That's yeah, I know there was some forgery involved in like a letter that, you know, yeah. was meant to prove the book was worth printing. And then it just got out of hand because not only Catholics wanted it, but suddenly the Protestants were like, hey, this is a great book. Even if it is Catholic, mm -hmm. let's just fucking go with it. And it really was down on everybody at the time. I mean, the, the literal translation of Malleus Maleficarum is the hammer against witches. Um, it is, you take the hammer, you bash the witch with it. If she doesn't admit she's a witch, you bash her with it more until she does, and then you kill her. I mean, it's that's true. That's where, we get was... the, that's where we get the attitude of witches will float. Innocent people don't. So let's tie the, the suspected witch up, hand and foot, <laughs> throw her in the lake, and then stand around to see if she floats. Because if she floats, then we drag her out and we kill her. Well, because 
if she floats, that means the the pure water of God is is rejecting her filthy, witchy ass, you know, because it's obviously polluted by Satan. And if she sinks, then you know she was innocent and everything is okay, except for that little detail that she's dead. Um. <laughs> it's true. The original Catch Twenty Two. Um, so that's, you know, that's where that comes from. But anyway, as part of the Witch Hunter's Guides, and I think it's probably in the Maleficarum as well, uh, one of the things that the hunters were asked, were told to look for was a witch's nipple. Now, this was a tag or flag or mole of some sort that grew out of the witch's body. So they would do a strip search. And they would check every mole out to see if it bled. They would uh, check all the little tags. My Mary's got a lot of little growths that are like a pore that just kept growing straight out. And it's called a tag or a flag. Uh, you go to the dermatologist, you get it cut off, and it stops bleeding and it doesn't come back. Um, but they would look for those as well. Because they were considered to be the place where the demon spirit familiar would uh, feed from uh, so that it could stay alive and help the witch. And they would poke it with needles and stuff. If it didn't bleed, it meant that that was the witch's nipple. If it did bleed, then they would poke other places. Now, one of the tools they had was a rod with a very sharp needle on it that retracted into the handle. So that when they poked her with it, the needle went back into the handle, they pulled it out, there's no blood, that's it. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they added the familiar, the cat, the animals, in with the demon familiars, and said that the demon familiars given to them by Staten could take the shape of a cat. So let's kill all the cats, and then let's give ourselves the plague. <laughs> and it just keeps going like that. And Brian's not on the phone anymore. <laughs> oh, I thought I was. Sorry. No, it's okay. Go ahead. But yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is, the the hammer is a crazy book. Um, <laughs> read it, and then just ignore everything it says because it is awful. <laughs> it's bullshit. Okay, so that's the historical perspective on familiars. What familiars have turned into these days for common usage is a companion animal. Okay, um, Basically, it's any pet that's especially loving to you uh, and that wants to... that has picked you as their person. Uh, so, occasionally cats, most dogs... Um, they can be considered familiars. And that's what baby pagans and young pagans call them. They're, oh, it's my familiar. You know, and it's like, no, it isn't. It's your pet. It loves you. A true, true. familiar, a true familiar is a spirit in the shape of an animal of some sort that participates with you in ritual, uh, helps you when you're doing things like healing people or moving energy or casting a spell. Um, one that seems to be especially attentive when you're doing a uh, circle or something along those lines. 
it you you can use it as a living battery of energy now I want you to be really careful about this because you're talking about another living beings energy that you're going to be drawing out of and pushing into okay <coughs> that gets really dangerous really quickly because you can do permanent damage if you pull too much energy alright so like a blood donation take a little bit leave a lot um, same thing with um, energy for pushing it into the, the familiar. Give a little, don't, you know, not too much. Because the animal can hurt itself. I mean, I had, there was a dog that uh, I helped calm down at one point. It was just super energetic. It was bouncing around. It was all over the place. It was scared. It was nervous. I uh, the, the pet owner asked me to help it out. I called it over. I held it. I stroked it. And I pulled out a about what I call a quart of energy. <laughs> I mean, there's a certain level of, of energy that you can sense in, in other beings. And if you look at it like a battery, it goes down one bar. Okay. Uh, to three quarters full. And that was enough energy to get the, the dog to settle down and to stop being so extreme. And it, it worked. And the, and the owner was like, wow. Oh my goodness! You're you're just wonderful. You're 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 amazing. And I'm like, I work with energy all the time. Um, okay, you get away from me, creepy person. Now, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And so that's that's what you're looking for. Uh, that type of energy exchange. There have been reports from various people that they can share the senses of their companion they're they're familiar um i can see it happening i haven't ever had it happen to myself but with cats especially you gotta remember cats are very lightly joined to their bodies they do astral projection like nobody's business uh had my, one of my cats died because of it he uh, we had sent him to a friend's house to stay because we couldn't take care of him where we were going to um, and he and his sister went to that house, and he missed us so badly that he left his body and came wandering and found us, and then forgot to go back to his body, um, and died. And I got a call a few days later, and she was just hysterical because the cat had died, and it was her fault, you know. And it's like, no, it was his time, and I felt bad, you know, but I had... He was sitting there right in front of me, you know, in astral form. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of cool. But um, you start getting the a sharing of emotions. Um, people report that with certain animals, they will be upset or hurt, and they'll start holding their animal and petting it and whatever, and they'll calm down and that raging hormone emotional thing will fade away that's one of the things that uh, a familiar can do okay is they can stabilize your mood it's um i guess it's a radiator outside of you where she the the cat comes into your area gets upset with you and then starts taking the emotion that is upsetting you and just radiating it out into the universe okay 
Uh, and that's another thing that you can do with, with familiars. But mostly they're there to help you stay grounded, stay centered, and to worship with you uh, when you go into a ritual situation. Okay, And that's when you can start suspecting that a pet is more than a pet and is actually a familiar, when that sort of stuff starts happening. Brian? Um, I don't actually work with familiars, so I have nothing to say about the subject. <laughs> oh, wonderful. I get to carry it all. <laughs> well, it's just like every other podcast then. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, here's an example. Um, everybody has a beloved stuffed animal from when they were little. And there was, and after a while, there was this feeling of companionship whenever you held it. There was this feeling of being loved and protected, or loved and loving. Um, it was an emotional shelter. It was somebody that you cried into. That's the kind of familiar spirit you're looking for. If it happens to wind up in a cat, that's fantastic. If it happens to wind up in a snake, that's something else. Uh, if it's your pet tarantula, you know, that's good too. But that's the kind of spirit that you're looking for, that same anchor outside of yourself. That same, this is you. This is your connection. Okay. Um, it can be that a higher spirit, uh, let's just throw it out there, like a guardian angel, can become similar to it. And by the rules that the Bible put out, a guardian, uh, a guardian angel is a familiar spirit. Okay? That's true. Um, you know, and guardian angels have been around for, well, since I was little at least. Um, then there's the people that channel beings, like, uh, what's-her-face that, uh, had Seth, speaking of cats. Um, it's true, my cat does have an opinion. And but! Sorry, continue. All right. Uh, and then there's Edgar Casey, who is channeling other beings. Uh, there's a lot of trance mediums who uh, channel uh, spirits from other places, other times. Uh, they can be considered familiars. Um, familiar, un unfortunately, has the connotation of being lesser than. You hear... Okay. You have you. You have a spirit that is shaped like a person over here. You have another spirit that is shaped like a person over there. Okay. They're both energetic beings that exist on another plane that help you and guide you. But when I say one of them is a familiar and the other is a spirit guide, you get this difference in level. Because true. the one implies lesser than, and the other implies greater than. Okay? You can't make this mistake. All right? Familiars are just as important as spirit guides, as teachers, as aliens from Alpha Centauri, as uh, deities. All of them are at the same level. Okay? They all do the same thing. It's a different word for it. Okay? It's and true. Unfortunately, that's what we've been taught, is that a familiar is less than. So... 
I'm pretty much out of... Yeah, we're at two hours right now, so... Alright, um, that's pretty much the end of the show. I mean, I don't have anything else to add to it unless Brian does. Why, yes, in the past three minutes I've actually con- come up with tons of stuff about familiars that exactly. I didn't <laughs> have in the past half hour. Yeah, alright. <laughs> so, anyway, that's it for today, folks. Uh, go back and listen to, listen to the begging section where we uh, ask you to get in touch with us and send us money um, and li- then listen again to the healing section where we, we bless you and heal you and send us your money <laughs> <laughs> it's true <laughs> and have a good time okay have a good night folks bye bye <laughs>